We have seen that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' description of, of what it looks like when a community of people submits their lives to him as their king. And so we've seen week in and week out different aspects of what that means. And what we're going to see tonight, one aspect of what that means as a community of people, to submit to Jesus as king in this way means that, that we become loving instead of insisting on our rights. That's what we're going to see in this passage. I want to read it to you, and then we'll jump in and look at it. This is Matthew 5, 38 through 42. It reads this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is God's word. Let me pray, and we'll consider it together. Uh, Father, we are desperate for your spirit. We would pray that your spirit would join us now and would attend your word and present us... Um, present before us the beauty and the wonder of your love and of your grace. I do pray that that would melt, um, that would melt the coldness in our hearts, that would melt the bitterness in our hearts, that would melt the anger in our hearts, and it would turn us outside of ourselves to be radically loving, radically unselfish, and to make even this little group right here at App State a, a group that is uh, salt and light, to, to to present Jesus as someone who is beautiful. And so that's our prayer tonight. Would you help us? Would you teach us? Would you point us to truth and to beauty? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you get on King Street and you head towards 421, or head towards Tennessee, it turns into 421, and my house is about 10, 12 minutes out that way. If you get to my house and you continue on 421, continuing to head towards Tennessee, you will... In about 20 minutes, find yourself in Mountain City, Tennessee. Well, a year ago, last February, February of 2012, there was a double murder in Mountain City, Tennessee. Double homicide. And the report was the reason why there was a double homicide was that there was a man that killed these two people. The reason being is that these two people had defriended his daughter on Facebook. And he was so publicly shamed by that, so publicly hurt by that, he took up vigilante justice to kill these two people. Okay? If you rewind to uh, the November before that, November of 2011, in Iowa, there was a woman who was defriended, unfriended, whatever you call it, on Facebook by her neighbor... <coughs> And so she set her neighbor's garage on fire. Again, a little cray-cray, but still she thought, uh, this, is such a, this is such an attack against me, I will not let this go unchecked, set the house on fire. The month before that, one more example, October of 2011, in Texas, my homeland, a husband physically assaults his wife beats his wife up for failing to like one of his statuses. All of this is true. 
You can confirm this on the internet. <laughs> now, what do these three stories have in common besides Facebook? What they have in common is, is that they, these are stories that demonstrate this human instinct toward vengeance. If you're going to hurt me, you're going to shame me, you're going to dishonor me, I'm, I'm coming for blood. And look, everyone in this room knows that because everyone in this room feels that. You don't, you don't have to be taught to want revenge. You don't have to, to be taught to kind of want retaliation. It's just intuitive to us. And what Jesus is going to do in this passage is begin pressing on that instinct. To press on that instinct of why we want vengeance. Why we want to retaliate. Why we want to get even. And so, just to kind of set you up for where we are, as we've seen for the past few weeks, at this stage in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the kind of middle to the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has been taking six different examples from the Old Testament to show us what their true, intended, original meaning really is. And so we see him doing that in verse 38. He quotes again from the Old Testament. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is just basically the law of retribution. This was a general legal principle that just established that the punishment should fit the crime. So if I break your window, what this law protects me from is having to pay you like a crazy exorbitant amount of compensation for breaking your window. And it also prevents you from coming after me to, to get even for it. So what this law did, it was a general legal principle. What people in Jesus' day did, though, was they extracted this legal principle from the legal realm, and they applied it to their day-in and day-out realm. So, they thought, this, you know, the way that they were interpreting this particular law was, okay, if you hurt me, I now have a biblically justified, God-given reason to retaliate. So if you hurt me, an eye for an eye, now I get to hurt you. You cut me off in traffic, biblically speaking, I can cut you off in traffic now. I can get even with you based off of this law. And Jesus is saying, you've completely missed the point. You've completely missed it. So he steps into the fray here, and he enters in, and look at the next uh, line there. He says, I say to you, don't resist one that is evil. That word resist is kind of a technical term. He's basically, he basically says, don't take someone to court, even though they're evil. He calls it evil. He doesn't wash over it. He says, even though they're evil and they've seriously hurt you, don't insist on your rights, in other words. Don't insist on your rights to take them to court. And what he's basically doing is he's setting up this new principle for us to say, the way that you relate to people now is not to be on the basis of rights, but rather the basis of love. So what he does for the rest of this passage is he fleshes that out in four different scenarios, four different vignettes, if you will. And these are kind of the four things that I want to tick through for the rest of the night. He says, we are called to love, one, when we're disrespected, two, when we're mistreated, three, when we're abused, and four, when we're used. Those are the four things that I just kind of want to walk this, through this passage with you, that we are called to love as followers of Jesus when we're disrespected, when we're mistreated, when we're abused, and when we're used. Now, just to put a footnote here, I'm getting a lot of help from one of my friends, pastor friends, by the name of Jack Howell. We're not related, 
He just has an amazing last name. Okay, first thing. We're called to love when we're disrespected. Look at verse 39. He says this. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay, it's important to know that detail that he says the right cheek. Because people in Jesus' day, most of them, like in our day, would have been right-handed. Sorry, lefties, but we got you outnumbered. So if somebody was getting a slap on the right hand, on the right side of their cheek, that means that they are getting back slapped. So what Jesus is talking about here is not about violent attacks against you. He's talking about when someone insults you, when someone shames you, when someone dishonors you. So let's just go ahead and get some things off of the table here. Jesus is not talking about self-defense. Of course there's a time for self-defense. Of course there's a time to involve the police. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about his views on war. He's not justifying pacifism here. He's not talking about war philosophy. Nor is he suggesting that if you're in a physically or sexually abusive relationship, that you just stay in it. He's, He's not talking about any of that, so let's just get all of that off the table. What he's talking about is situations when you've been dishonored. You've been insulted, you've been offended, you've been disrespected. So, uh, somebody writes something on Facebook, or you read somewhere in a blog, and, and, and what they write offends you to the core of who you are because they've either offended your political opinions or your spiritual and religious perspective. Now, if you're anything like me and you read something like that on Facebook, you read something like that on the internet, and there's an opportunity to write back, you want blood. You want to let them know that what they said is ignorant, irrelevant, wrong. You feel insulted. You feel dishonored. And if you enter into the fray and write something back, letting them know what you think... All this does is, you know, that doesn't settle the score, right? I mean, that usually just kind of perpetuates the cycle of retaliation. This is why you can read somebody's status and, you know, the first time you read it, you're like, whoa, that's toxic. And then there's 50 comments underneath it and you realize, oh, this is just a back and forth volleyball game of hatred. People are playing with each other. This is what Jesus is saying. When you feel that sense of dishonor, you feel insulted, you feel disrespected, Every instinct in you is to want to fight back. And Jesus says, don't. The call here is not to fight where you repay evil for evil, nor is it to flight where you just kind of ignore that it happened. Rather, the call is to stand, to engage out of love for the person that offended you, for the person that hurt you. And so if you know this person, if they go to your school, that you live in the same town with them, I think what this looks like is you initiating with them, you engaging with them, you taking them out to coffee, sitting down with them and talking about it. You letting them know what you wrote was hurtful. What you wrote was disrespectful. I feel misunderstood. Don't, you see how that's not, that's not attacking back, and nor is it just kind of forgetting, no, that, that didn't actually happen. It's engaging. It's loving. That's the call. Or this happens... Uh, all the time at the SRC. I think particularly, I think particularly for guys, we, we hate this maybe more than the ladies do, maybe just because we're guys. But if, you know, if you're like on the basketball court, if somebody owns you, just totally schools you in front of other people, 
That's one thing, to be made to look stupid in front of everybody on the court. But then if the other person kind of stares you down afterward, <laughs> or kind of walks with a swing, you know, runs with a swagger back to the other end of the court, or, uh, you know, starts talking about it afterward, there's an instinct in you that wants to crush that human being. Where, where you, don't want, you don't want to love them. You don't want to kind of work through this. You want to hurt them. And Jesus' call here is that instinct needs to be neither flight nor fight. It needs to be engagement out of love for the person that disrespected you. For the very person that dishonored you. That's the first thing that we see, that we're called to love even when we've been disrespected. Let's look at the second one. We're called to love even when we are mistreated. Look at verse 40. He says this. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now we've got to do a little background homework here to make sense of this. See how he talks about two different types of clothing. You have a tunic and you have a cloak. The tunic was what people wore back in the day, which was kind of this inner garment, kind of like underwear. It was like below everything else. And then your tunic was what you wore on the outside, kind of like your your coat, everything else. And the Old Testament, interestingly enough, said that it was your inalienable right to have a cloak. Nobody could sue you for it. It was illegal for anybody to try to take it from you because the cloak served for people that were lower income, People who were poor, the cloak was not just what you wore, the cloak was also your bedding. It was like what you slept in, it was like your sheets, it was your pillow, it was what you slept in. So God's concern for you was that this is so protected, it's sacred, nobody can take this from you. And here's what Jesus says here. He jumps into this and says, okay, here's this thing of yours, your God-given inalienable right, and you can give that away too. You can give it away to the person who's trying to sue you for your underwear, is what he's saying. When somebody tries to sue you for your tunic, you can give them away your cloak as well. Now, what is he getting at? He is not getting at, if someone sues you, you can't go to court, you can't get a lawyer, you can't defend yourself, courts are bad. He's not saying that. What he's saying is he is addressing your heart. He is addressing your heart. Do you relate to people on the basis of your rights? This is my right. Or do you relate to other people on the basis of love? Because you know what it's like. You feel like you have certain rights that you will not let go of. This is my right to a good grade if I studied hard. It is my right to keep my light on. If you want to go to bed early, that's your deal. But, you know, I'm sorry, Rumi, but I'm going to keep my light on if I'm going to stay up late. It's mine. We feel like we have these particular rights, do we not? And what Jesus does is he steps in here and he says, when somebody threatens those rights, and that's kind of when the gloves come off. That's when the fangs come out in us. Someone threatens my rights, game on. And Jesus says, look at your heart when you're doing that. Are you relating to someone on the basis of your rights or on the basis of love? I tried to think about what this would look like in your context. Here's my best crack at it. You know when uh, it's your turn to do the dishes, and you do the dishes because you're a good roommate, and so you've done them, you've basically now just bought yourself a free turn because it's now your roommate's turn to do the dishes, right? And so when it's their turn to do them, 
and they don't do them, you get furious. Because it's, it's not your turn. It's not your right to do it. It's, you, you've, you've put in your time. You've earned it. It's their turn. It's, they, they're the ones that need to do it. And you're furious. And when that happens, what are you doing? That anger just shows you the way that you're relating to another human being is on the basis of rights and this tit for tat. Uh, who's even? Whose turn is it? And Jesus is saying, what would it look like for you to give up your very right? Even though, yeah, it is their turn. <laughs> What does it look like to love another human being, not on the basis of rights, but just on the basis of because you love them? See, Jesus says we're called to love when we've been disrespected, when we've been mistreated. Thirdly, we're called to love even when we've been abused. Look at verse 41. He says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, you always hear that language, go the second mile, uh, and I never, I don't think I ever knew what that meant until I studied this passage this week. Here's what this is getting at. When Jesus uses that word force, when someone forces you to go with him one mile, he's talking about this thing that actually happened historically and culturally at this time in the first century. In the first century, the Roman Empire was overseeing the particular jurisdiction of where the land of Israel was. So you have the people of Israel, but you had Roman soldiers that were basically over it, subjugating it. And there was this policy that Roman soldiers had in place that if they were going along and they had all this cargo, they could force any Israeli civilian to help them carry their like heavy cargo stuff. They could just make them carry stuff. So this is why you hear kind of later in the gospel stories, if it, they kind of grab somebody from the crowd and make them carry Jesus' cross because Jesus couldn't carry it anymore. This is what they would do. They got heavy stuff. They're trying to transport stuff. They would just grab people and force them, stop their day, stop whatever you're doing. You had to help the Roman soldiers carry what they were carrying. But there was sort of a check and balance in place that they could only force you to go one mile. And they somehow measured that according to footsteps. So they, they could force you to go with them, but only one mile. And Jesus says, okay, let's say you're in that situation where somebody is forcing you to do something against your will because they have power over you, and they're forcing you to go with them one mile. What happens when you get to the end of that one mile? Don't stop. Put the stuff down and say, I'm done. I put in my time. I'm going back to my life. Don't insist on your legal rights, he's saying. What he's saying is surprise your very abuser. And go with them a second. Relate to them with love so much that it, that it would almost startle them that you would be willing to go with them a second mile. So here's what Jesus is saying here. Here's a situation where someone is forcing you to do something against your will because they have power over you. And I think that's, that's kind of the definition of abuse. And I know from talking with many of you that, that you know what this is like. Some of you have horrific stories, horrific stories, where you have felt this firsthand, where someone has forced you to do something or has done something to you against your will simply because they had power over you. And so some of you were physically abused by your dad or your stepdad growing up. It was not spanking. It was assault. Some of you have been sexually abused growing up by someone that maybe you even trusted. Some of you, I know, have been sexually assaulted since you've gotten to campus. I do not know what any of that is like personally. 
And, and so I, I'm, I'm treading very gently here. I just, I want you to ask the question that I think Jesus is gently nudging you to ask. What does it look like for you to love your abuser? What does it look like to relate to that person that wounded you, that took advantage of you in that visceral, horrific way out of love? Because I, th- I think what he's doing here is saying that your knee-jerk reaction is to live the rest of your life with hatred and with anger and with despair and with bitterness. And you have to know that all of those feelings, I get it, I totally get it, but those feelings are enslaving. And those will make you a jaded, cynical person. Jesus is saying, okay, the way that you relate to this person, if you're still in the situation, I think the way that you relate to this person out of love, it may look like calling the police. Loving your abuser, loving your oppressor may look like involving the police. But once you're extracted, once you're out of that sort of toxic context, what do you do then? What is your attitude to be then? Your attitude then is to be an attitude that is crazy supernatural, a response of love, a response of forgiveness. Not entering back into the relationship, but an attitude of forgiveness and love. The, the, the best illustration that I know to kind of put some skin and texture on this is a story by, of a Dutch woman around World War II time by the name of Cory Ten Boom. She was a Dutch woman that was captured by uh, the Nazis, was taken to the uh, concentration camp uh, called Ravensbrück with her sister and with her father. And while she was uh, in Ravensbrück, Corey uh, becomes a Christian. And so after World War II is over, in 1947, she goes, you know, after she's released, she goes back to Germany to speak in kind of this venue, kind of like this, an auditorium kind of thing, to speak about Jesus' love and forgiveness. And after her little speech thing, this man starts walking up to her, and she notices that this man is one of the guards, one of the cruelest guards, she says, that was in her concentration camp. And so rather than me just try to tell you the story, I want to read to you what she says. Here's her account. She says this. The solemn faces stared back at me, not knowing what to believe, and then I saw him, working his way forward after my talk. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, and next, a blue uniform with a skull with, 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 with a cap with skull and crossbones. She's like having this flashback of back in the concentration camp. It came back with a rush. The huge floor with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the room, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you are. That place was Ravensbrook. And the man who was making his way forward had been a guard, one of the most cruel guards. And now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him. And I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. 
But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again been forgiven, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. My father had died in another. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It cannot have been many seconds that he stood there with his hand hung out, but it seemed to me to be hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing in my life. But forgiveness is not an emotion, and I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus helped, Jesus helped me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust out my hand to the one stretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and this healing warmth flooded my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all of my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. I realized it was not my love. I tried and I didn't have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. And what she seems to be demonstrating in this story is that God will bless and he will honor your feeble attempts to love your abusers. To love those that have taken advantage of you. Last vignette. Last little scenario of Jesus' call to love. We're called to love when we've been disrespected, when we've been mistreated, abused, and lastly, even when we've been used. When we've just flat out been taken advantage of. Verse 42. He says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So this is pretty simple. He says, when someone asks you for money, you could insist on your right and say, no, it's your money. You don't owe them anything. Rather, Jesus says, give it away out of love. And of course, no, I don't think Jesus is making this rule where in any situation where someone comes up and asks you for money, you just give it. Those situations always call for wisdom and discernment. But what I think he's pressing on is that concern that we all have that if I give somebody my hard-earned money, this person may be a crook. This person may be a drunk. And he's going to take it and take advantage of me and go use it on drugs or alcohol or something, so I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to give. And what Jesus is saying is, out of concern, legitimate concern, for those sort of scenarios, what ends up happening to us is we become greedy, stingy, and we're never generous. And Jesus is saying, the call in this situation is the call in every situation. Do not insist on your rights, but rather be radically generous in the way that you love other people. Now, before we wrap up, I know that some of you are angry with all of this. Some of you are overwhelmed with this. Some of you are confused by this because you're thinking, I have no idea how to connect this to my real life. Where someone in my life that I know has profoundly hurt me, someone has profoundly betrayed me, and you're asking me, Jesus is asking me to, to love them? I, I, I shouldn't have to do that. I shouldn't have to be the one to do that. They should be the one that should come to me. 
And I totally get that. I get that instinct. I don't know any other way to motivate you to do this, to something this crazy, this radical, this counterintuitive, this sacrificial, other than to point you to Jesus himself. Because what Jesus is doing in this passage, he's not just giving you this law and say, do this, y'all figure out how to do it, but I'm going to be like every other God, like every other religion, and I'm just going to go up in the cloud somewhere where it's comfortable and have nothing to do with any of this. What he does is he says, I'm not just going to ask you to do this, I'm going to do it as well. And so these four things, Jesus applies to himself as well. Okay, so let's go through it. How was Jesus disrespected? Well, when he was arrested unjustly, he was slapped, backhanded by Roman soldiers. They spit in his face. They, they, they draped a purple robe over him to kind of just basically mock his claims that he was the king. Oh, you're a king. You're such an idiot. And they would laugh. They'd spit at his face, totally disrespect him, totally dishonor him, totally humiliate him. And he didn't fight. And he didn't do flight. He stood. He engaged out of love for the people that were disrespecting him. So we see Jesus disrespected. We see Jesus mistreated. Uh, He was punched. He was beaten with staffs, basically like big canes. Uh, He was stabbed with a spear. He was whipped with his open back with this thing called a cat of nine tails, which was like this whip with nine different strands in it. And in the strands, the Roman soldiers embedded different pieces of glass or rocks so that when they whipped it around his back, it would snag into his skin. And then when they pull it back, it would yank out hunks of flesh as it did. Not one point in any of this did he call down an army of angels and say, no one treats me like this and obliterate them all. He stood and he took it. Out of love. Jesus was disrespected. Jesus was mistreated. Jesus was abused. They stripped him of his clothes. And they hung him up there on the cross completely naked. And exposed for the world to see. Completely humiliated. At the, at the most vulnerable part of his being. And he stood. And he loved his oppressor. He loved his abusers. And Jesus was used. Jesus is used. He lived that life and he died that death to pay for our relationship with God. Unbelievably costly to him, profoundly free to you and me. And so we take this free gift, and you and I do this all the time. We take his free change, his free generosity, his free grace, and we use it to indulge in our own sinful practices, our own sinful instincts. We take advantage of him all the time, and even then, even now, He still says, I'm not going to insist on my rights in the way that I relate to you. I'm going to hold my ground and relate to you out of love. So what do we see? We see Jesus, the king of the universe, giving up his rights for us. Giving up his rights for you and for me. And so we we constantly fail in the way that we love him and in the way that we love other people. And Jesus is saying, hey, I I don't want you to be crushed under this weight of guilt about this. I want you to look at me right this second. Jesus is saying, look, I could insist on my rights right now and say, I'm done with all of y'all. Y'all suck as Christians. Y'all don't know how to love people. You love people terribly. He could do that. But what is he doing right now? He is saying to you and to me, I'm not insisting on my rights. Even now, I'm relating to you out of love. I have paid for with my violent death your failure to love other people well. Even now. 
And what that should do is that should free us. I mean, Jesus is saying, yeah, I want you to live for me. But the way that you will live for me is that you have to see that I first lived for you. When you and I, when we extend love to our oppressors, it will turn the world upside down. It will. But the only way that we'll ever be able to do that is is if his love has first turned us upside down. And when his love comes in and radically revolutionizes everything about the way that we think, everything about the way that we are, we're much more prone to love the person that disrespected us, the person that mistreated us, the person that abused us, the person that's taken advantage of us. Last thing and we're done. I wanted to give you a real life example of of what this looks like for Christians to actually do this. Uh, There's an article that came out last year about this man named Patrick Green. Patrick Green, uh, kind of a known atheist in uh, kind of central uh, western Texas, south Texas, uh, near San Antonio. And what Patrick Green would do every single year is he would sue the city of San Antonio for their use of a nativity scene around Christmas time in the public square. And so he felt like this was, as an atheist, this was, this was a violation of his First Amendment rights. So every single year, I mean, he would just he would sue the city, thinking this is a public outrage, this is a, this is a disgrace, this is an infringement on my First Amendment rights. So... This year rolled around, I guess this was last year, last year rolled around, and this reporter goes up to him and, and is interviewing him, sticks the mic in his face and says, hey, it's that time of year again, are you going to do um, your annual lawsuit that you slap at um, San Antonio? And he says, I can't do it this year. I, I have a detached retina, and I'm not able to drive the 300 miles from my house to San Antonio that he would drive every single year to, to represent himself in court to file this lawsuit against San Antonio. And so that was the article that was produced. He, he wasn't able to sue San Antonio again. Well, there's this woman, Jessica Cry, who hears this article, hears about the story, and thinks, we need to do something about this. So she goes to her pastor and tells him about the story. The pastor calls the atheist guy, Patrick Green, and says, hey, how can we help you? And the guy says, I, you know, I don't want your help. I, I've got, I've got med- medical bills coming out of my ears. I've got a $2,000, $20,000 retina repair for my eye, and I can't even pay my rent. I can't even pay my groceries. I don't want your help. Three days later, check comes in for $400 for his rent, for his groceries. And as the months went on, money kept pouring in, covering all of his basic needs, and then eventually covering all of his medical needs. He, he, he was interviewed later, and he, and he says in this article, he says, looking back on this whole story, he says, I want to write a book about this whole incident, and I want to call it The Real Christians of Henderson County. Because he goes on to say, these people are acting like what the Bible says a Christian should. Now, these Christians could have lawyered up And they could have demanded their First Amendment rights. No one gets to threaten our right to have a nativity scene in the public square. But they didn't do that. Instead, they said, let us pay your rent. Let us cover your groceries. Winning lawsuits does not win people. Love does. Winning arguments 
may feel really good, but it does not win people. Loved us. So if that is what Jesus has done with his rights for you, if you consider yourself to be someone that is in him by faith, then what will you do with your rights? Out of love for the people that have hurt you, for the people that have mistreated you, people disrespected you, people that have abused you. That's the question I want to leave you with. If that's what he's done with his rights, what will you do with yours? Let me pray. Father, this is an impossible task to love like this, to love like Corey Tinboom love, to love like these this church in San Antonio loved and Father, and yet we see that it is possible by your spirit and by your grace. And so Father, would you get into our would you get into our bloodstream and free us from the slavery of insisting on our own rights and would you free us to actually start loving other people? That's our prayer. We pray all this in Jesus name. Amen.